everyone. Welcome to Dust Jackets, conversation with authors. My special guest today is Matt Buckman. He just waved to you. I've been fortunate to know Matt for about 15 years. We met in a writer's workshop on the Oregon coast, and I've kept in touch with him off and on over all this time, sometimes more off and sometimes more on. I've really watched his career take off, and I'm so excited to have him here today. Let me just take a moment and share his official bio with you so you can see why he's such an amazing author. Matt is a USA Today and Amazon number one bestseller. He has more than 60 novels in action adventure, thrillers, contemporary, and military romance. He also has more than 100 short stories and a lot of audiobooks. I've lost count how many audiobooks he has. Me too. <laughs> Um, Publishers Weekly declares Tom Clancy fans open to a strong female lead will clamor for more. Booklist says three times top 10 romance of the year and among the 20 best romantic suspense novels, modern masterpieces. NPR and BNN say best five romance of the year. In other words, a lot of people really like him and I do too. He was a 30-year project manager with a geophysics degree. He's designed and built houses, flown and jumped out of planes, solo sailed a 50-foot sailboat, and bicycled solo around the world. Oh, and he quilts. <laughs> Sounds like the perfect romantic male character, doesn't it? <laughs> what I love about Matt's work really is his characters. He always features strong women, which I really love to see in literature. And they, as well as the men in the books, are complex. There's no cookie cutter personalities here. He also has a gift for setting that I personally envy. I've always been accused of writing in a white box. And so Matt is someone that you really do know where you are and why you're there. So let's just kind of get into the questions so listeners can hear from you. Um, Actually, there was a question right there which is I'm actually terrible at setting. It's oh. been my bugaboo my whole life. My oh. wife can't picture things. So she's my first reader. And so the reason you can see my setting is because my first manuscripts come back bleeding with, where are they? Oh. What's it look like? What are the trees? <laughs> oh, that's you're all very her doing. That's all her doing. Well, that's, that's great. Um, I that I am very much like her in that way, and that I don't see things. In fact, uh, my husband always laughs when we go for a drive around the town here, and I say, "Where did that building pop up?" Now we've lived here for two and a half years. He says, oh, it's been there the whole time. Like, <laughs> I just don't see it, but yeah, it, it takes work. Well, I'm glad to know that it, you work well um, at doing it because it doesn't show that you had to work so hard. So I'd kind of like to talk about just starting with your tagline, championing the human spirit. Mm -hmm. um, I love that line for me personally, um, just because I do think that's what we should all be doing for ourselves and for each other. Um, but the books of yours that I've read, and I admit I have not read all 60 of your novels. Um, How about the 100 short stories? No, <laughs> not that either. <laughs> But, you know, the ones I have read, I think that you you really do that, that you really do champion the human spirit. It's a 
it's a theme that goes through through all of the books that I've read. So I wondered, did you know that this was who you were from the start, or did it take some time to kind of come to this realization? It took me a lot of time to figure out how to say it in so few words. <laughs> but it actually started uh, Earth Day 1986, maybe. Uh, somebody wow. put up that big poster of, you know, the Earth, think globally, act locally. And she was politically active. And she put it right across from my desk because we had back-to-back desks. And she kept trying to push me, you know, be politically active and all these things that an introvert can't do. And, uh, but I started thinking, what can I do? What can I, how can I make a difference that counts? And when I started writing in the early 90s, it was like, I came very late to writing. Um, it was like, oh, here's, here's a mechanism where I can put forward. It was a conscious choice right from the very first story of here's how I can say, look at how cool we can be. Look at how amazing people can be. And what can I do to exemplify that? And then of course I discovered romance in the nineties and you can go, I mean, that's what romance is about, is about that character and that characterization. And so I just went to town with it and said, okay, I'm going to just push that for all I was worth. And so, yeah, I've known it way back. I think my current series, Miranda Chase, she's a high-functioning autistic. And she's a, a air crash investigator across an arc of books. And for her, it's a more subtle choice of how I'm doing it. It's, it's not, look at how wonderful we can be. It's like, we're really flawed. I become a more mature writer. She's really flawed, but she's trying. And she's, she's being the best that she can be with all her shortcomings. So that's, it's still that, that same theme is carried through all these different iterations. Exactly what I was going to say is that even though she is a flawed character, you're still championing her, you know, and, and her spirit because none of us are perfect. And so it's nice to know that even with our flaws, we still have something really important to offer to the world. I'd really like to follow up on that. Um, As I've shared with you in the past, I don't know how many watching this podcast know it is that, you know, I have an autistic brother myself. Um, He's not as high functioning as Miranda Chase is in your novel. He's more along the moderate line. Um, So I'm always really interested when people are portrayed who are on the autism spectrum, which is really large. And one of the things I love about Miranda is that even though she's more high functioning than my brother, I can still see those characteristics in her that I see in him. And I think stories like that give us hope. For those of us who have people who have different kinds of intellectual abilities and disabilities. And can you just kind of share what made you choose that particular ability for this character and, you know, what kind of research you did in order to be able to really bring her to life? Well, uh, some of it was easy. My kid is an autism therapist for kids in the three to six year old range. Uh. And uh, so she and it, the 
bug bit her early on. So I've heard about that since she was in her teens. And um, it's like, so she brought that into the house, but I wasn't thinking about it as a character. Miranda, I was looking for, I was looking for somebody who would be a challenge to write. I had written so many, you know, strong, capable characters who have, you know, they excel beyond normal humanity, if you will, which these people do in real life. You get into the top tiers of military special operations, which I wrote a lot of. Those are really exceptional, exceptional people that, you know, they're the movie screen stars of a world we never hear about. The, uh, and even, you know, I would have the top fashion designer in this series and top cook in that series and the dog handler. You know, it's, I wanted somebody who had really had to face her herself and her challenges. And so I was brainstorming around and I've always liked airplanes. I'm always sorry that I didn't get to my original dream was to fly them. And uh, it turns out I'm partly colorblind, but we didn't figure that out till after I had a hundred hours in the air. Oh my gosh. And so it's like, Oh, I'd never get to fly commercial. I always wanted to fly to big jets. So it was like, okay, I'd love to write about that chunk of big jets. That I know about the NTSB, the invest crash investigators. I had this idea of a character who, wasn't exactly complete. I didn't know she was autistic yet. Mm-hmm. And I so I started reading and I started researching and I started talking to my kid about the different types of other skilled, I think is probably the best way to put it. Uh, and the more I look at autism, the less, yeah, the moderate and low functioning have huge challenges. The high functioning are often geniuses in one area, one area this wide, but they are brilliant at um, Temple Grandin and slaughterhouses of all things that she is a genius at this. And we had read Temple Grandin book uh, back when my kid was first getting interested in this. It was part of what got her started. And so I started reading and I started looking at blogs and I started talking to my kid and I, went on to Reddit and I started asking questions in autism groups and just, I've probably read 10 books, a couple hundred articles and who knows how many blog posts and forums. And that's, so it, it got built over time and I'm still researching actively. I have eight titles done and I'm reading a book right now about how autistic women are in relationships with a neurotypical Oh, wow. because I want it. And it's a book just about that. And so it's like, how are, what is she going to do in the next four books? Cause she wants a relationship. She's just not good at them. Right. Yes. And yes my, my brother very much wants a relationship. It comes up in conversation at least weekly. <laughs> so I understand mm-hmm. that. Well, and the other thing that you really portray well, which I think is true across the spectrum, no matter where you are, is that focus extreme focus on something. And I think that's for people who are higher on the spectrum, help them to be geniuses or, or so amazing is because they're able to do that. Yeah. 
Yeah, go to Silicon Valley and interview the programmers. And if they aren't autistic, they're really close. Right. Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> exactly true. Um, so I just kind of like to step back a bit from when I first met you, which is that um, as I've watched your career, you know, you've done a lot of military romance, a lot of things having to do with military and flight and things like that, which Miranda Chase, although not a romance, you know, continues that. But when she I does. met you, um, you were actually doing historical mysteries. <laughs> and, um, I will and then, never see the light of day. Right. <laughs> and I then wrote you, you and they had sterling rejections. I right. mean, sterling, like, please never show me this again. It was Snoopy level rejections. Oh, come time. on. I don't believe you in that. No, seriously. Seriously. I got one of them invited onto the desk of Mills and Boone's historical editor, the head editor. And I got it onto her desk and she sent back a rejection note that said, this is very nicely written. Please send me your next contemporary romance. And she underlined contemporary three times. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, never show me a historical again from the lead historical editor of you know, oh dear. Well, that, that that is a bit debilitating. <laughs> that is only one of the several rejections I had at that kind of level with exactly that kind of phrase. Wow. I do not have a and what it but what it taught me is I don't have a historical voice. Right. I can't. I'm a contemporary writer. Yeah, well, thank goodness you learned it early because you've had a really stellar career with contemporary. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to follow up on the really romance bit because um, when I met you again, I didn't really know you well at that time, but as you started to move into romance and, and start to get some traction there, I distinctly remember seeing you at a Romance Writers of America conference where I could literally count on one hand, the number of men <laughs> who were there. Mm-hmm. And what is it that made you stick with that? Because you had to have felt like an outcast. And yet your stories seem to, that you really love women. I mean, you really champion women. It's not, they're not just um, arm candy or that kind of thing. Wow. How to shorten that answer. Um, (laughs) I had written, huh. I was raised on MGM musicals and Broadway shows Uh, and folk music and, you know, women can be something amazing. And a lot of those shows exemplify that. And I was raised in a matriarchy. So I had it there as well. Uh, My grandmother on my mother's side was very, was a, powerful woman who came from a powerful line. And then my mom kind of screwed it up, but that's a different issue. <laughs> <laughs> my sister made up for it. And um, so I, I never had this, this con this male concept of women were that arm candy thing. Then I sold my first book, which was a fantasy cookbook from hell to uh a romance editor and she wanted to prove that men wrote romance. So she took five of us to RWA 1996 national conference, 1800 women, seven men, 
five of them were us. Ah. And um, had me get up in front of a room of 80 women and read this awful sex scene that she had forced me to put into the book. Oh, dear. I'm glad to say I've redrafted the book and the scene is gone. Oh. <laughs> that's the conference where I actually read my first romance. And because they hand out a lot of free books at these right. conferences. And so I actually read three of them that night. And it was like, oh, I get this. I was raised on this. And it's about for a long time, my writing ethos was strong women and the men they deserve. Because I've seen women pushed back into corners so many times, and it makes me so angry every time. So that became a, a theme for me of I start with the strong women. And part of it's also because women terrify me. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they do. They scare the living daylights out of me. Maybe it's because of the matriarchy or something. But um, I have very hard for me to talk to a woman, even now, that I don't know, already know. I'm, wow. I go I go from introvert to enclosed shy. Wow. Um, but on the page, I get to spend my time thinking about who they are, who they can be, the challenges that male society has perpetrated on their heads. And what they did to triumph over each of those things. And that's what got me hooked on the romance trope as, as an overall trope. Uh, wow. That, and I, you, and, yeah. When you bring up that, the strong women and the men they deserve, I, I do remember that, that tagline. I'd forgotten about it with your new one. Um, Actually, this is my old one, but the, then I went to the strong women, but now that I'm not writing romance, uh, I had to shed it back to the original core, which was uh, championing the human spirit. Well, I like the championing the human spirit even better because I think it Me goes too. across all of the books that you write. Um, so now, now that it seems your your core books, at least at the moment, that are doing really well are your Miranda Chase books, but you still have and and still occasionally write in some of those other romance series. Is that right? Yes. At one point, not all that long ago, I had 11 open series. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the, there are so many problems with doing that. One is keeping track of anything, but um, the other one is you, you like this one series as a reader. Great. It'll be three years before you get the next book because I have to write 12, uh, 10 other books before I can get back to that one. Right. So I started consciously in 2017 closing series. And I just started writing the final book in a series or until I finally got down to where I really have two main open series. I also have two others that are way in the background being ignored. <laughs> but um, so I have the Miranda Chase main series. And then I have a series called White House Protection Force, which is a rom romantic suspense about the dog handlers of the Secret Service. Okay. And their handlers and the people they fall in love with. And I, I'm going to go back to that this fall and do another trilogy. 
I'll probably just because the White House has gotten two Looney Tunes from when I originated this series, I'll probably change it to the Dog Force. Oh, <laughs> but because um, it is, it's going to stay about the dogs and the the war dogs and service dogs and retired service dogs and. I wanted to broaden the scope of that a bit, but it's going to stay in romantic suspense because I love, I wrote 50, I have my little pen. I wrote 50 novels in romance and I just love that genre. Right. So, so you, um, so you don't have a plan to return to some of your um, earlier contemporary romance, like small town, like the Henderson ranch or, the Where Dreams that takes place in Seattle. Um, well, intend to and get to not to is two different things. Okay. <laughs> uh, Where Dreams, I finished that. It's a five novel, three short story arc that I finished in 2015. And suddenly I had a Christmas story in 2020. <laughs> I, it was the kids from the fourth book who said, no, no, we're now old enough. We want our story. Yeah. <laughs> and so they got a short story. that gave you the story of the two kids. Um, wow. I have no idea. They're characters. We writers don't control them. They, they control us. As far as my main romantic suspense series, 35 novels and 11 short story series, 12 short story series, all fit in this thing called the Emily Beale universe. And it's because my, she was the first character I created who broke me out. She's, it's her fault that I have a career writing. Thank you. <laughs> and, um, but the first 13 books belong to a traditional publisher. Uh, and so I'm not doing anything there until those rights come back. And when I have all those rights back, then I will, definitely go back and revisit the Emily Beale universe. Mm -hmm. um, Given, you know, there are th three, three major series that they have the rights to. And I'll just, I'll, I'll add it happily add another book to each of those series. Once I'm the one who benefits from it. Right. Yeah. I know a lot of authors who have made that switch from traditional to independent publishing and, um, and that is a, a problem of, you know, mm -hmm. having to wait to do that. Yeah, yeah. Completely understandable. Well, one of the other things you've done that um, I find really impressive is you have audiobooks and you actually narrate them yourself. I do. Um, not, you know, not that you need more work <laughs> to do, but <laughs> um, was, was I always find more to do. <laughs> Was your decision to do that a financial decision? Because, you know, certainly paying narrators is an expensive proposition. Or do you actually love, you know, doing that kind of thing in, in terms of narration or making your characters come to life in another venue? I'm actually going to blame this on two things. One is somebody told me that I actually have a really nice voice. I had no idea I had a nice deep male voice. It's my voice. What do I know? <laughs> and the rest of it is Stephen King's fault. And the reason is, if you've ever listened to Stephen King read an, uh, one of his books, and I highly recommend it because it's an experience, he just reads it. 
He opens it and he starts on the first line and he reads it like Soto voice. But I will always listen to Stephen King read an audiobook because he's the master of punctuation. I mean, he's won the Pen Award a couple of years ago. He's probably the best living writer today. And you got to hear every breath the way he intended it as he's reading it aloud. No characterization, no dramatization, no nuance, but you get every breath exactly the way the master of the breath. He controls how you breathe. He controls your heart rate just with his words. And I'm a huge fan of read by author for that reason. And I've had a number of fans saying when they've listened to one of my books, I'm, I'm no professional actor. They say, oh, now I get how that book was supposed to sound. Oh. I, you know, there it is. That's what I wanted. Um, and then I was a sound geek for a live theater for five or six years professionally. Mm. So microphones, preamps, sound editing, I know all that stuff. And the fact that it's now digital and you can do it on your laptop is cool. And so yeah. for me, it was a fairly easy step. And then I finally just wrote the book on it and said, you know, um, this, this is, I wrote the book called How to Record and Narrate Your Own Audiobook. And it's a simplified guide. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. And, and it's actually listening to you that have made me consider doing some narration myself. So um, it's a lot of work. Yes. Um, <laughs> it takes a lot of, putting yourself aside, you will hate your own voice. That's a given because about 50 to 60% of your voice is coming up these two bones to reach your ear. Well, when you record out here, you don't get any of these tones coming to your ear. You get only this. And so you don't sound like you, but you kind of do just enough to be wrong. (laughs) And you just, you have to set all those things aside and it's about the performance of the character. Even if it's a, nonfiction piece because I also record my nonfiction. Um, it's, am I teaching a class? I'm teaching a class. I'm trying to engage. I'm trying to bring that energy. And that comes, goes into the narration. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, I can see myself doing nonfiction because I have taught classes. Um, for me, it's harder for me to see myself doing fiction. Um, I think because um, the professional narrators who have done my books are in fact actresses, you know, mm-hmm. who do have all of that, the drama and the nuance and can do a different accent and everything. And so I compare myself to that, but I do know that um, people do like author read books. And so um, I'm going to try one. And then if it goes well, I'll thank you. And if it doesn't, I'll blame you. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> So being as we have a few minutes left, I would like to just briefly talk about your nonfiction books, because I know that some of the people who are watching this podcast are authors or are wanting to be published mm-hmm. authors. And um, you mentioned your your audiobook one, which I think is really good. Another one that I really love, um, particularly for people who are a bit along in their career, is the one about um, preparing for your death. And all oh, the estate, estate planning. Yeah. Right. Um, can you just kind of 
talk a little bit about why that is so important and uh, what got you to write that book? That came out of my wife coming up to my to me one day and saying, you know, our kid is terrified of the day you die. I'm like, oh, that's not a bad thing. You know, <laughs> that's kind of cool. And it's like, no, it's because she's going to inherit all this stuff you've created and she had no idea what to do with it. She's in autism therapy. She's not in publishing. Right. <laughs> and she knows from hanging out with, around me that what I've created, my rights survive me by 70 years. Death plus 70, the copyrights are mine. And that's potential income they can get flushed down the drain. Right. And so I started trying to figure out how to set it up and how to explain it to her. And it took me about a year of research and reading other people's books on estate planning that were insane and things on estates that had gone wrong and how authors gave away all their rights. And um, just, and they're still going on. Uh, Octavia Butler, one of the, the greatest science fiction wow. writers probably the number one female science fiction writer. And she's basically out of print because her death, her estate agent will not talk to anyone, A, who's female, i.e. most of the editors in New York, or B, if it's less than a movie deal. Oh, my God. Her stories are going out of print. Her novels are going out of print. Her name's being forgotten. She's been dead 15 years. Yeah. It's just terrifying. And so what I did was I ended up writing a letter to my kid. Mm. Here's the language of publishing. Here's where stuff is stored on my computer. It wasn't rocket science, but it was encapsulating that and writing it down and saying, and here are listed at the top, the three phone numbers you call. Because And the call is, and I say right in the letter, the call is, hi, Matt said to call you. He has all this stuff on his computer and he's dead. Can you take care of it for me? Mm. And each of these people either can or can tell them who can. Very simple. As long as you set it up and actually talk about it. Right. And one of the things we did was we sat down and we read through the letter together and she went, I don't get this. Great. I wrote another half page <laughs> and we went through until she finally understood everything I wrote in the letter. Mm. It was like, by the time I was done with that, I had a book. So I wrote the, so I started working on the book and that got me a friendship with Suzanne Brockman, who if you're into romantic suspense, she's the one who, no, she didn't. Sandra Brown created romantic suspense, modern romantic suspense, Georgette Hare. Um, she, Suzanne Brockman created military romantic suspense yes. personally. And I had, somebody had put something online and it was so wrong about estates and it was so wrong in so many ways. That, you know, I almost didn't answer. And I finally said, well, try thinking of it like this. And suddenly Suzanne pops up in my email inbox mm -hmm. and said, is there more to this? <laughs> and we went back and forth and she helped me 
turn it into the book it is and uh, started a friendship. We did a talk together at RWA. I'm part of the reason she went indie. Uh, Mm. How wonderful. Yeah, that that was a really cool side benefit from that. And, and that is exactly the thing I like about that book and any of the books you write for authors is that they're practical. You know, you, you don't spend all the time in what I call lawyer talk, you yeah. know, which most people cannot decipher, including myself, who's read many contracts over my career. But you just make it practical because most of us when we die, our estates do go to people who know nothing about publishing, didn't really want to know anything about publishing during our life. Um, and yet they they should have the benefits of it. And so I love your idea about like putting some names at the top of your letter, you know, call this person for this, call this person for that. Yep. So I really appreciate that. And your audiobook one is is very much the same. It's just very practical. Here's the equipment you need. Here's what it takes. And what that comes out of is years ago, I spent 30 years as a project manager in corporate. And I had a boss, I could not get a proposal across his desk. For the life of me, I'm they hired me to build them a $1.3 million computer system. And I could not get a $10,000 proposal across his desk. And so one night after he went home, I went and I sat in his chair. And I must have sat there for three, four hours, just looking at how does he see the firm? What would it be like to sit here and think about who comes in and who goes out? Mm -hmm. And I realized I was writing my proposals for an IT geek. I was not writing them for his chair. And from that day, every single thing I put in front of him went through. Ah. And so that's the way I write my nonfiction. And actually, it's the way I write my fiction, too. It's you have to come from the reader's chair. And that's part of how the setting gets in there and the emotional curve gets in there. It's like, oh, no, the reader isn't going to follow that leap because I'll make the leap. It's my character. It's my world. Mm-hmm. It's my nonfiction book. No, I watch the reader's chair and I, what's the next step? Give me step by step. If it's an emotional arc or an estate plan, what's the next step? And that has been a real, that's been a really key guide to how I write and how I approach all writing. I, I agree with you 100%. And that's why I still use a developmental editor <laughs> because I think. By the time I've finished a book and edited it, I think everything's on the page. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. every time it comes back, sometimes it's not a lot. Sometimes it's only three or four little things that can be fixed with a paragraph or a chapter. But it makes a huge difference when the that, person comes that, back and says, I didn't, I didn't go there with you. Or more often she says, you need a whole lot more emotion here because this is huge. Well, it felt huge to me, but <laughs> evidently not as she was reading it. So I, I think that is just so critical. Yeah. And that's what I have two beta readers, only two. They're the only two I trust. Mm. They're only two who get to see the book after the first draft is done. And one is my wife who 
she does the copy edit and she said, and all of the, I can't see this. I don't get this. Why did you do that? And the other one is a big picture guy. And he said, why in the world should I buy this? You know, why would I believe that? Wouldn't it be cool if they, mm. and they each only take a couple days and they bleed on the manuscripts. Yeah. And a lot of times it's okay, you know, go through and fix all the little notes and it's a great book and do a little tweak here and a tweak here. Um, as I told you offline last week, they handed me back a manuscript and I had to throw out a third of the book yeah. because <laughs> I had tried to do something and I had it so clear in my head and I went there and I took the character there and I broke the story. And they said, I don't get it. You broke the story. Wow. And that's what those kind of editors do. Yes. To me, that was, it was a really cool, I had twisted this one character so hard that she'd done something and it turned out was too far out of character. Yeah. And of course I had set that up all the way back in the beginning. Yes. So <laughs> I had to go all the way through the book and unwind. And then about a third of the way in, I just had to cut off the book and redraft. Oh, wow. Um, but I had the story then, and it's so such a better book than I could have thought of on my own because that outside, you can't edit yourself. That outside person came in and went right there. That's where you went, went wrong. And finding the right people is invaluable for that. It sounds like you've really yeah. done that. Well, I, I married one of them. I lucked into it. Yeah, right. I, didn't, I didn't know that about her when I fell in love. <laughs> well, and, and I'd actually bonus. like to kind of close our questioning with that, which is that you and your wife are truly partners in your business and yep. not only partners in life. And um, I don't know a lot of people who can work with their spouses and still stay married. <laughs> so do you have any tips to anyone who might be considering that or, um, maybe struggling a bit with that as to, as to what can make that work? The we're very unusual in that we are both introverts and we're both givers by nature. So we're always trying to help each other and others. That's just sort of our basis. She tried writing. It didn't take, but she loves the written word. She's a former librarian retired now um and i think probably the biggest thing is we don't bring ego into it. Mm. if she slashes up a book i know there's a reason she slashed up the book and it may hurt sure. <laughs> but i wouldn't think to blame her on it she's giving me her best mm. feedback and we don't We'll brainstorm together, but then she says, go do that. That's her gesture. Go do that. <laughs> so we come up with this cool idea and she'll say, go do that. Because she isn't trying to step into the creative process. So she's really, a lot of what she does is clerical. Mm. Um, she takes care of the money. She takes care of uploading things. She, But she also tells me when I've lost the track. Um, I would have quit two or three times over the years. And she said, no, 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 this mm -hmm. is you. Wow. Um, 
there was once where middle of the last recession, I had lost, I'd been fired twice during the recession and they weren't hiring back middle managers. We were bleeding money out every pour. And we got this, I, I had this one indie book that took off. In, I had a couple traditional in this one indie book, Daniel's Christmas went pop and sold like 400 copies. Wow. And it, and it did it again the next month. And it was like, why is it doing that? And she said, this is your chance. And wow. we bet a third of our savings. And I took a year and I had a, one year to make it happen. And at the end of the year, we, we used up a third of the savings. I broke even for a year and I paid it back by the 30 months out. Wow. But that's because she believed in me that, that much. Um, and I work my ass off, but well, yes. <laughs> yeah. well, that, that is really a love so, story. Yeah. So it, it, it's yeah. been a collaboration like that without us. And I think the key is ego. We just, neither of us have brought ego to this. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me today, Matt. My and, pleasure. Um, I want everyone to know that I have put Matt's uh, website address uh, in the show notes. And so please go visit him. It's mlbuckman.com, right? B-U-C-H-M-A-N-N. One N. One N. Okay. And that's Facebook, Twitter, which I barely use, but they're all ML Buckman. Okay. And I'll, I'll add your social media into the show notes as well. Okay. So thanks again. Thank you, Maggie. Have fun.